Anyhow, the books. Are you seeing the books? Everything you would want to read is right here. Feel it. Feels good, right? Now smell it. Nothing, nothing smells like that. I'm sorry, excuse me. Did I just see you smell that book? Dear Reader, a Jane Eyre podcast brought to you by the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Episode 3, Space Ghosts. Greetings and salutations to the third episode of Dear Reader, a limited series looking at the classic Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte through the lens of its varied and various interpretations. There won't be any continuity for this show, but I do suggest maybe starting with episode 1 if you've never read Jane Eyre, and then you can just hop around to what interests you. Now, in the previous episode, I looked at two silent films and a radio play. And in this episode, I'm going to be looking at two reimaginings of Jane Eyre on paper, meaning books. I'm first going to be judging adaptations on their own merits, or else... It wouldn't be fair to those works to just judge it on how closely it follows Jane Eyre, especially those that are reimaginings or only refer to or pay homage to Jane Eyre. And this episode is actually pretty difficult because we do have reimaginings and it's hard to separate Jane Eyre from the author's work, but I'm going to do my best. So I've set up a a list of questions or almost a rubric as to how I'm going to be judging these adaptations at the end. So some of these things that I'm going to be looking at, the spirit of the book, the tone, the themes. Is it gothic? Is it romantic? Those sorts of things. Is Jane or the stand-in a relatable character? Is she our narrator? Is she speaking to us? What is her character like? Does she have moral aptitude? What is the level of her moral aptitude? And when I say moral aptitude, I'm thinking of reverence, faithfulness, her awareness of responsibility, her veracity, and her goodness. Are there childhood scenes? What are they like? Who are the most important people in her life through those scenes? And if not, how do we understand what she has gone through and what type of person it has made her? As we found out from episode two, Helen Burns is perhaps one of the most important characters in Jane Eyre. I'm saying that. And so that's something that will be carrying through this series. I'll be looking for the Helen Burns or Helen Burns stand-in. How are her relationships with those around her, the Fairfaxes, the Adels, the Reed family? What is the relationship like between Jane and Edward or the stand-ins? Is their relationship or their love affair believable? 
What is the conflict that tears them apart? And is that believable? And then finally, can this adaptation stand alone? Or must you have read Jane Eyre to truly appreciate it? And I've called this the spirit of Jane or the law of Jane. Which does it follow or does it follow both? Now, this rubric may amend itself. I've already amended it several times. I've just amended it again. So we will see as this series develops what that turns into. So this is the first episode that I am looking at book reimaginings of Jane Eyre. And there are several, and I picked two in this episode anyways, one that I had heard of a while ago, and then another one which is really the basis of this whole podcast. So because of that book, I felt like I had to do it. I won't be doing too many books. I think there's only one other episode that I will be looking at actual literature. And then depending on what you think of comics and manga, that as well, graphic literature, I suppose. But just to give you a taste, it, it's, it would be strange, I think, to do a limited series on Jane Eyre and not look at some of the literature that has developed because of it. So I'm going to be looking at, in this half anyways, Brightly Burning by Alexa Dunn. This was published on May 1st, 2018 by HMH Books for Young Readers. The publisher synopsis is as follows. 17-year-old Stella Ainsley, yes, yes, wants just one thing, to go somewhere anywhere else. Her home is a floundering spaceship that offers few prospects, having been orbiting in ice-encased Earth for 200 years. When a private ship hires her as a governess, Stella jumps at the chance. The captain of the Rochester, 19-year-old Hugo Fairfax, is notorious throughout the fleet for being a moody recluse and a drunk. But with Stella, he's kind. But the Rochester harbors secrets. Stella is certain someone is trying to kill Hugo, and the more she discovers, the more questions she has about his role in a conspiracy threatening the fleet. And to give you a sense of ratings, <laughs> if you believe or buy into that sort of thing, it has a 3.72 on Goodreads from over 3,949 ratings. So I'm not someone who necessarily buys into it because there are some things on Rotten Tomatoes that I see are low rated and I enjoy it. So it's all about, you know, what you guys like. And as Shagalicious says, finding your joy. So I just want to say, because there's a funny backstory with this, <laughs> that this novel and me discovering that it existed, I found out about it at San Diego Comic-Con when I was at this particular panel and Alexa Dunn was on the panel and she and I think this Comic-Con was 2016 or 2017 and she I think it was like closing comments and she said you know I'm writing this book or you know this book is due out to be published it might have been 2017 then since she was talking about it and it's it's Jane Eyre in space and I whipped out my phone and I wrote that in my notes section and I had it in my notes section for this many years for three plus or four years but Donovan my good friend Donovan Morgan Grant is 
a part of this history, and I asked him to <laughs> to think back to that time. And so here's a clip of his side of that story, because more goes on. So what I'm going to do is I'm going <laughs> to ask you and a what? question. <laughs> oh, then... that's right, you are. <laughs> and then I will quit the call, shut off MP3 Skype recorder, and call you again so that we're not recording this entire watch party. But, <laughs> Donovan, do you remember? I think it was 2016. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I'm so sorry, because I know what's about to happen. Do you remember? I think it was 2016, San Diego Comic-Con. We had just seen a panel that was probably more related to what we were doing at the time and we decided to stay for the panel afterwards which had um, i think it was about harry potter oh you're talking about this <laughs> <laughs> yeah Do you yes remember what happened would you like to say in your own words what happened during that panel and my own filthy words <laughs> um yeah so I, I forget what year it was. I guess it was 2016, but it was, it was the con after, um, was it the Cursed Child? Yes. That had come out in in um in book form, and the nerds of the panel were like, oh, uh, so, so let's all you know complain about this plot twist in the Cursed. Child. Well, first of all, how many people have read the? Everyone's read the Cursed Child. Every, if you're here in this panel, you've read the Cursed Child, right? <laughs> Raise your hand if you've not read the Cursed Child, and. I don't know if you raise your hand or not, but I raise my hand because I'm I'm an honest John, so my hand goes up, and the bastard controlling the lighting put a spotlight on me. And everyone just like directed their eyeballs at me, like what? You didn't read the Crash Trial? <laughs> and like, and I, I turned to you because I was like, I don't think Silla's read it, and you're just too busy laughing to care, like you are now. And um, I never felt more humiliated in my life. <laughs> So people may think that you're exaggerating, but they honestly called you out and like addressed you. And then even later in the panel, like one of the men like turned to you and like, well, except for that guy right there. Yeah, it's always the men. <laughs> There's no reason for us to be in that in that thing. So like, you know, this, for our, our war, you know, was I was summarily, you mm. know, just 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 made just ridiculed for no reason. I don't know these people and they don't know me, but they, they do now. They do now. Thank you. It's as I always remembered it was. Yeah, and you're laughing just as derisively as you did back then. Actually, you were beside yourself with laughter. I bet. I bet I was. That was. I sent something to. It was probably Harold where there were. What was happening? I have to probably send this to you, but it was basically like something bad was happening to this other person, and their friend was just standing there laughing and not supporting them. I was like, yeah, that's basically me. <laughs> I'll have to send that to you. Well, thank uh, you. I wanted it in your own words, and this does have something to do with Jane Eyre, but it all comes back to this panel, so that's why I had to ask you that question. This something that, uh, are are Jane Eyre and Rochester in a panel, and someone put the spotlight <laughs> on her? No, an author, an author that I'm going to read. Actually, there was someone on the panel, and she mentioned that a book was coming out that was Jane Eyre in space. And that many years ago, I typed it in my phone. I was like, oh, this sounds really interesting. And then I remembered it, so I have read it, and I'm going to be talking about it on episode three. Okay, so if you are a fan of 
any of the comic podcasts that you might listen to. Uh, if you have come on because you know me from Backworld Oracle, you know that I often talk about the art that's within the comics. I think it's 50% of what a comic book is, so we have to pay due respect to the artist, and I especially like to talk about the covers. So I want to talk about the cover here of Brightly Burning, at least the one that I have. We know that as books are republished or, you know, if movie adaptations come out, they usually change those, which, as an aside, just to get to know me, I I don't like those covers. If a movie comes out and I get interested to read the book before seeing the film, if I purchase the book... I want the original cover. I don't want the the movie stars on it. And sometimes it gets hard because those are that's how they're going to be making their money is because people are going to want to do what I'm doing by the book before seeing the film, but yeah. Anyways, I was just thinking about that. Okay. So, this here is a beautiful cover. You've got Jane with her little, I was going to say top knot, but that's not really what it is. But, well, I, I don't even know why I called her Jane. Uh, you have Stella. Uh, they're both silhouettes, so it is very Jane Eyre-ass. Stella with her Jane bun, I'll say. And then Hugo, I was about to call him Edward, with her. It's a, I would say it's a romantic pose. It looks like his lips may be on her forehead, so it's more... I think a heartfelt romance than like a a bodice ripper sort of cover. And you can tell even from the silhouette that Hugo does in fact look younger. So the age difference or the age gap I should say is not is non existent in this one. And then surrounding them is it looks like it's a flower, purple, magenta, pinks trying to think if that has any significance in terms of I don't know unless like the virus I guess it could be a fire but it's the way it is just seems like maybe maybe it's a fire it's a purple fire around them so an interesting cover and I do purple is my favorite color so it works for me okay so of course I've got to talk about the book on its own got to be fair to it So a question here is, in terms of this, so this is a young adult novel, and it is post-apocalyptic. I want to talk about the world building and whether it was successful, because I assume that this is the only book here. I don't think, I didn't look up. She could have potentially done sequels, but I'm not sure what sort of... (laughs) Just thought about, what if the sequel is like Wuthering Heights and When They're on Earth... We've got, you know, Catherine and Heathcliff all of a sudden pop up. But anyways, that's hard to world build in one book. And was it successful? I feel like it was successful. She, she, Alexa Dawn, meaning she, she sets up the disaster. She's able to put the seeds around of what happened to Earth and why they were there. Um, basically, that Earth, they're a, a super volcano erupted and it caused a frozen wasteland and so 
they talk about that because she's teaching young kids. So we find out a little bit of background without doing an info dump at the beginning. And then we also get a sense through Stella as narrator of what her situation is and how that happened to be, you know, why she's on this particular ship, what's special about this ship. So each ship has their own particular usefulness. Of course, some of the ships are just wealthy people not doing anything. So (laughs) that makes sense as well. I feel like, yes, it is successful. Difficult, again, to do it in one book. And I'm just thinking about in terms of Hunger Games that I like, or maybe I'll just stick with that and say Hunger Games. I was about to say, I mean, there are other ones. I could say Divergent or Maze Runner, but those all have a a setup as well in the beginning. You have to get a good sense, I think, of what world you're in established at the beginning because you don't know if you're going to develop a series or not. Has this been done before? Pieces, I think post-apocalyptic dramas and teen romance and things like that, obviously there are several of them now, so there is going to be some overlap, but I think Dunn is able to do somewhat of an original story, though I did see some similarities with The 100. I've not read that series, but from the show there are some similarities there, but... To a certain extent, there aren't any original ideas, are there? I mean, right now, the whole basis of this book is not an original idea because it's off of Jane Eyre. So there you go. So we've got an Earth disaster. We have ships. Each of the ships has a purpose to a certain extent, and some of the ships also represent different nations. And there are different usefulnesses, like I told you. Kind of seems like a commune (laughs) to a certain extent on some of them. There are different social classes depending on their ships and functions. And of course, some of them are in a way like Hunger Games where the different districts had a function, but also there was like a social bias to each of them from the the center outwards it's like that as well there's an impending disaster so all is not well even though they escaped a disaster they've been floating up there they're running out of resources people aren't living so long and so they're getting married early which is a way to I think so realistic seeds as to what will later happen between Stella and Hugo just getting engaged and it being weird if only in context of the situation on that particular ship not in terms of their age. There's political intrigue based around the impending disaster as well as the Rochester mystery so all these things are going on within this one book. There is a virus eliminating the population, which is part of the political intrigue. And having a population control office is what I would say is probably most like the 100 and having a child restriction. There's too much, basically. There are too many people. There's not enough resources. And so we find out in this novel that a virus went around and... In the beginning, it seemed like just a natural virus, and it it culled the population. And then you found out, actually, it was a laboratory-produced virus, and then they're trying to do it again. So eliminate the population, and guess what? Guess who is eliminated? Basically, the, the people that 
don't have the money, the lower social class people, which is really interesting. And I think currently relevant, because if you think about it, if, if, man, it's like eugenics, actually, I can just throw out that word. That's what it seems like to get rid of the people that you don't want. However, the irony is that they would be getting rid of people that they don't need as well. And so there are some protections just to be sure that, oh, well, we don't eliminate all the farmers or all the engineers. But still, yeah, there are only so many vaccines to go around. So, oh, that's crazy. I just had a thought of what if someone did a post-apocalyptic novel about COVID-19 and and also had all these political things going on in there as well. So it actually seems kind of crazy now I mean I don't think Don thought about this but a lot of this even though it's you know it's sci-fi it's supposed to be futuristic if you think about it in terms of what the U.S. does in certain aspects like voter restrictions and the vaccine and things like that stuff it it feels uncomfortably close to what is actually happening okay okay So enough of that. There are throughout many pop culture references, which are fun to figure out. She doesn't actually name them. But for instance, there's a movie night and they're going to have a showing of a film where this woman comes and takes care of all these little children and there are lots of songs. So obviously it's Sound of Music, but those are kind of fun to to figure out. So I would consider this besides young adult sci-fi as well. I think genres, well, I guess we decided, Tom and I decided that young adult is a category. So genre-wise, I think it's definitely sci-fi, but it only leans into it, I would say, about 50% rather than going 100. And perhaps because of the audience, if Dunn wants it to mostly be young adult, I think that she stays away from super technical language to not put people off. There's an AI in it that acts like Alexa, basically, and I think that's about it, besides, you know, the spaceships and and engineering and maybe some about that. But the terms and the lingo don't get too complicated. So this isn't like Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro, which I highly recommend. Society and beauty is still a strong theme, but I think more on society. Jane doesn't speak too often of her looks until it really counts. There was really only one scene in the beginning where she puts makeup on, and then afterward, you know, once Hugo is in play, which I suppose makes sense just because she, oh gosh, I don't like saying this, but she only worries about her looks when there's a guy involved. Do I care about Stella? Here's a big question, isn't it? So I was watching some videos with Dunn on her YouTube speaking about her book. One of the videos was, let's say, more of an advertisement for the book. And she talks about, I think, seven things like seven reasons why you should pick it up or, you know, seven things you should know about this. And then another video I watched was after it it had been released and some time had passed and she talked about the process from write, the written version, her first draft, to the published version. So I'm going to just pull a quote from something that she said about Stella on her first video about this is why you should read this book. And she says, and I quote, 
You don't have to be a typical strong female heroine to be strong AF, end quote. And so I was confused by this quote. I, it really caught my attention. I mean, I was only looking at this video to see like, oh, what does she say about it? And then that drops. I actually took to the Twitterverse and asked Don if I could ask her a question and about this quote, but I did not receive any word from her, so I don't know what she meant by it. So I don't know what she means by this typical strong female. Now, I don't know if that means, you know, you're just a heroine who is occasionally strong or what she actually is thinking is a strong or a typical strong female heroine. Perhaps she's looking at the Ripley's or the Sarah Connors and and seeing that they're literally strong female heroines. But for me, when I think about a strong female heroine, it's not necessarily that she has bulging muscles, but she can make decisions on her own. She has her own mind. She is a leader to a certain extent. She struggles with things, but she's able to make wise decisions. She doesn't necessarily have to be with a guy. Like she has her own agency and she cares for others and she's an overall good human being. So is Stella then not that? Is she not that a typical strong female heroine and she's just strong AF? I don't know. So do I care about Stella as a character? I guess that's the big question. Do I even see her as a strong female heroine? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. And I think there are moments where I was a bit annoyed with Stella. So I don't care about her, I think, as much as I do Jane. I think she's mostly strong. I don't know that I would consider her... I don't know. If I were to compare her with other, like, let's just say Katniss. I don't know. This is where my bias comes in because it's really hard to separate Stella from Jane. If if Jane is, I don't know, the analog or whatever that term would be. There are just, I, I think what pulls me away from Stella is her emotionality. And it's funny because on... Instagram I posted a picture I usually post a picture of books once I finish them and I think I had the caption of Jane Eyre in space and someone who really doesn't like Jane my friend Ash that used to be my co-worker my colleague at the school that I worked at she had these emojis or emo yeah emojis and I asked her what does that mean and she's just like I can't even imagine Jane basically simpering in space and I thought isn't that really interesting the word simpering and I thought I wouldn't think that of Jane but I kind of think that of Stella here her crush you know constant cru well, I shouldn't say constant crushes but her crushes trying to prettify for her best friend George there's a bit of a reverse harem or a love triangle. There seems to be, I don't know, George Hugo. George is a confusing one, to be honest. John, I think, is another one. She's clearly not interested, but there are some times that she's confused about it, mainly because she thinks he's interested, and I thought that's not the way that that's supposed to be. Just because someone's interested in you doesn't mean you have to be interested in them. And then, uh, 
here's something that I feel bad about saying. So I said the emotionality of Stella in, in a negative way, right? So I'm kind of playing into society's hands right there. So let me just sort of suss this out here. She cries or holds back crying, I would say several times. I was almost going to say a lot, but we'll just say several times. And some of them I can absolutely understand because you know family stressful situations things like that the ones that I don't like and that annoy me are when she's crying over men basically so should I be more forgiving because we should be teaching upcoming generations that feeling emotions is fine and it's good and it's healthy right not for only women but men as well because that's why we're getting into, into trouble is saying that men should not have emotions and then we got some te- toxic masculinity going on but should we also be telling our young women that maybe save your tears the men don't deserve it you know I, I think again this strong af I don't necessarily see it there if George has rejected you Is he worth your tears? Or are you just like, well, that's too bad. I've wasted some time and some feelings on him, but I'm going to move on and potentially find somebody else or just be strong on my own. I don't know. Perhaps I should be more forgiving of her. But those were just some times that I did feel like maybe she was simpering in space. So if I go back to the question about do I care about Stella – Sometimes, sometimes I do. I wasn't like fully always behind her 100%. There were some times that I disagreed with what she was doing. It's funny that this is, of course, a YA. And I wondered way back when, and I actually wrote it down on a special that Tom and I did. And he's like, really? But is Jane Eyre the original a YA? I feel like it might be. I mean, it's got the Bildungsroman. And it's following a woman in young adulthood. It's just that the language is, of course, more complicated than this one is right here. So I would say that the original Jane Eyre's YA, so it makes sense that we've got a YA here as well. I pulled out a couple pages here, actually, to talk about some things that go on. And here on page 164 kind of connects to playing into society. Stella is talking to Jessa, and Jessa is the Adele stand-in, and Jessa wants to dress in pants, and she says that pants are more comfortable, and Stella says that dresses are more comfortable to her. And she continues, you should be able to wear what you like. I agree, Jessa opened her mouth to reinvigorate her argument, but I stopped her in her tracks. But some people have certain ideas about what girls should wear, so that means a dress in a pretty color. My brother doesn't care what I wear, Jessa says. Uh, Yeah, so Jessa and Hugo are brother and sister. So close to one of those silent films that we did. But the Ingrams do, and your brother cares about them. I thought that was really interesting, if only because... If Stella is strong AF, and there are times that she's blunt, and she doesn't go the way of, I don't know, a a sycophant, or just someone trying to 
be safe in all things and just follow orders, then I feel like let the let the girl wear what she wants to wear. But just the fact that if people have ideas about what you should wear, you need to follow that. And oh, I don't know. I feel like this was just this was a moment where I was like, this isn't this isn't Jane Eyre. This isn't <laughs> this isn't someone that I would care about. Why should you? care about what other people want you to wear have your own identity be your own person so that was a real mixed message for me if we are not only thinking that Stella is Jane but also you know if if I'm a young woman reading that unfortunately a lot of people in real life that's what they believe right it's more about I should say it's less about who I am and what I want to wear and what, you know, clothing defines me or, you know, how I want to show my creativity and my originality. And it's more about how do I think this person is going to view me in what I am wearing. And that's unfortunate. That's a huge, huge, huge problem. And I don't even know how to begin to fix that besides lots of conversations. Okay. Moving on to Hugo here, he is both attractive and handsome, it seems, which is different than the source material because I would say that those two mean two different things. I think handsome is a man who is, I mean, upon first glance, really beautiful and everything seems in order (laughs) naturally and attractive for me anyways means that the person may not be outward like necessarily handsome handsome but there is something about their features that there's like an attraction to it as an example I would say Matt Smith I believe that's his name who was one of the doctors wasn't he if I look at him, I'm like, he's he's not very handsome, but I am attracted to him. Like, I still feel like he's an attractive guy. There's something about him. But Hugo is both attractive and handsome, so we take away some of his ugliness from the source material. He's still a bit smarmy. Now, with drinking and partying, it could be implied that he's still sleeping around, but Dunn doesn't get into that too much uh, besides maybe just a slight little nod to it the party scenes on the ship and I should be specific the party scenes with the Ingrams on the ship are worse in my opinion than the source material and he makes himself look like more of a jerk for forcing Stella to sit there oh boy yeah again I, I just don't know I mean she's she stays there for propriety's sake, but I just feel like why would you put yourself through that sort of abuse? And even in her internal monologue, she's like, oh my gosh, I just need to leave. Well, leave, please. I still wonder a bit why Stella wants Hugo. I suppose it's in those quiet moments together, but she so quickly shoves off her affections for George and moves on to Hugo. Ugh. I guess young adult novels, I don't know. There's definitely chemistry in the beginning on her side and then getting to know him, but I just would be put off so quickly by him being a jerk when the Ingrams are there that I I just, I can't relate. 
Though I do think about one of my friends and former colleagues, and I asked how she met her now husband, and you know, like, was it quick right off? And she's like, oh no, oh no, I hated him. He was a piece of... (laughs) And I started laughing because I had no idea. It was like not at all what I was expecting. So I guess people do surprise you. And just like in the anime, you can go from hating someone to loving them. So I guess hate and love really are closer than we imagine these extreme feelings. Does Hugo get off scot-free, you know, too easily? Should he have known what was going on with the virus so that the virus really just originates on his ship and his father was involved and his chief science officer as well I oh my gosh yeah because there's this moment where he he doesn't say anything to her and just like assumes the guilt and this is really the moment where she goes off and everything and she's so upset and she's angry she's sad for leaving him and I thought okay like he's really we've kind of turned him into an antagonist here which I thought was interesting but then all of a sudden we find out he actually didn't have anything to do with it and (laughs) If you didn't have anything to do with it, shouldn't you have spoken up? I guess, I don't know. You still, because it's your ship and you were around, I think you still have to assume some guilt, but at least, you know, throw that out there. But then all of a sudden at the end, I guess so that we can have Stella just be a strong AF character, that she's not choosing this guy who's a bit morally dubious, that... Now other people are saying he he didn't know anything of what was going on, which I think is a bit unbelievable that he doesn't know what's going on on his own ship. But we've got to make the male lead as good as possible. Unfortunately, we make Hinata culpable, but she is apparently easily forgiven too because she was being blackmailed. So everyone who had a hand in the virus, and I'll say the first batch and the second batch, They're bad people for an instant, and then all of a sudden there's a reason that they they were a part of it, and so we must forgive them. But I guess that is empathy for you, isn't it? When something's going on, you can absolutely condemn what they're doing, but you also have to ask yourself, why are they doing it, and should I show them empathy for it? So there you go. Okay, people, this is the time of the show where I say that there is no Helen in this novel. Okay, but there is a Helen stand-in. George, the BFF turned love interest that also spurns Stella, is Helen. He's a strong friend and... He's certainly the one that stays with her and shows her love. But I don't like that that love, that I would say agape and familial love, isn't that phileo, Hmm. gets wrapped up and confused and then turns into an erotic type of love, which is one-sided, of course. I did actually care about George. When he got shot, I was super sad. I thought, oh, no. George is going to die, which apparently in the original edit, Dunn actually did have him die. And then I think her editor said you can't do that or something like that. Sinjin is John, but he really 
comes, I guess I should do it the other way around. John, J-O-N, is Sinjin, but he really does come out of nowhere, and I don't buy the love triangle. Like, all of a sudden, he's writing Stella, and she's like, this is weird. Why is he writing me? And then through that, she's like, huh, I think he might like me. Do I like him? And it's just, it's a bit bizarre. (laughs) There's no, there are no childhood scenes with Stella here. You get it mostly in her memories and her speaking of her own backstory and George being there and everything. So, well, I'll get to that once I get to my review. But we just see her as this young adult. There's no race, which I thought was interesting. No ethnicity or necessarily culture. Though I, th- we can see it. I think in the names, though that could be me being accidentally racist by thinking that someone's name seems like it may be Indian, uh, Asian Indian that is, and their jobs in particular, so similar to Hunger Games where the districts, depending on where they were, you could probably assume like, oh, these people might primarily be black or these people might primarily be white or something like that. On page 211, we have the emergence of the title, which I've forgotten to note a couple times when I've talked about novels in the past. I find it interesting. I'd like to hear what you all think about the title popping up somewhere in the book. Do you like that? Or would you like it to be a mystery as to why something is called the way it is? But here we go. This is chapter 18, in case you have a different edition that it's not on page 211. And I'll start a bit before. And this is the section where Stella needs to go... I was about to say home, but that doesn't make sense. Go to the ship that her aunt is on because her aunt is dying. So this is similar to to Jane. He stared dumbfounded. Where are you going? To the Empire, I said. That's the name of the ship. My aunt is dying and she asked for me. You have to go. I would regret it if I didn't. A loaded pause and then, fine. Then when do you leave? He refused to look at me, instead focusing on the rug on the floor, exquisite and impractical as it was. I willed him to look at me, to say what he was feeling. Sometimes I could swear he knew what I was thinking, but just as quickly he could turn so cold, distant. Hugo was a planet far from reach, a brightly burning star too distant to fathom. So Hugo is brightly burning. I find this really interesting mainly because if this novel is about Stella and it's Stella's point of view, shouldn't the title be about her and not about Hugo? (laughs) That's what I would think, but I guess that's why I don't write novels. So... Huh, a brightly burning star. It makes him seem so, I don't know, exotic or in, uh, just an enigma, which is, which is humorous to a certain extent because I think that's what men think about women all the time, that they're difficult to understand. And so, oh, what does that mean about Hugo and, I don't know, the nature of his masculinity? That potential, he's just mysterious, I guess, if if we want to make it a more masculine sense. It's also, I suppose, just the nature of Hugo slash Edward that 
it's difficult for him to open up and show his feelings and his emotions because of what he has gone through. I don't, it's, I always feel kind of icky to compare people's tragedies. But if I were to compare Hugo with Edward, I think they've both had a bad spot of what's been going on. But Edward, I think, seems like he's never had a fair shake. And Hugo has some blessings in his life that he doesn't necessarily recognize or he takes for granted. I think particularly his little sister. But enough comparing trauma. So yeah, I I guess it makes sense that he would be described like this brightly burning star. I don't know. It's just interesting. It's brightly burning star just seems so beautiful. And yeah, this natural phenomenon that we can't fully understand. But is he really all that? (laughs) If I were to, if someone were to tell me, you know, this guy's a brightly burning star, I'd be like, oh, wow. Like, how beautiful is he inside and out? But there's some tragedy to him. And I don't know if I necessarily think that this guy is all that, that I would call him that, uh, a brightly burning star. But I don't know. Poor Stella. She needs to be called a brightly burning star. But she wears her emotions on her sleeve. Except that's interesting I say that because she wears her emotions on her sleeve for us, the readers. But even Edward, ugh, even Hugo <laughs> says when they have their first kiss, like, oh, finally you took your mask off. So that's kind of interesting that she does keep a poker face and or a mask and doesn't show what she's thinking very often. Jane always needs a moral quandary to leave Rochester. And so Stella needed a moral quandary to leave Hugo. Here, it's a virus. And it's a virus that is homegrown, I'll say. And it's meant to wipe out some of the population, some of the the dregs of society. Here's a question. Is that better or worse than trapping Bertha in an attic? I would, ooh. Again, I'm comparing tragedies and traumas here. I would say it's worse only if it's in number and in terms of society back then, not really knowing what to do with Bertha. Maybe this is it, but it was, you know, maybe this is all we can do to help her. But of course, it was also out of shame. But the virus, we're actively seeking to kill people off, whereas Bertha, we're just trying to keep her safe, keep her out of sight, and keep other people safe. So I would say that this is probably worse. Cassandra is the mother, and she's our mad woman in the attic. And this is really interesting character and situation because, well, a lot more people know about it than I think in the source material, but... She has psychosis because she was given experimental drugs to help her panic attacks. And I wondered if Dunn was saying anything with this particular drop of information. Just the fact that someone having panic attacks, we need to deal with them, let us medicate them and then of course the medication you know trying to quiet them down and then the medication makes it even worse I don't know if that's anything to say about people that may have some 
mental distress or anxiety and not being able to deal with them. So we just give them something and uh, tell them to quiet down? Is it something that uh, we, we don't have more compassion, I think, and, and let the let the panic attack ensue, but ensue and be there with them and calm them down so there's more like a natural way to stop the panic attacks? Is Dunn saying anything about <laughs> pharmaceuticals? I don't know. It, it was just a really interesting statement, I think, to make in terms of the novel and then just that the father is like feeding her this stuff so like oh, you know calm down there you go there you go almost as if oh and it's just like you know you've got this crazy woman or this woman is just hysterical right so let's okay deal with her so there's a lot of stuff going on just with that particular scene I think that does maybe harken back to old views and even current views right that women are just hysterical and emotional and so how can we deal with them we subdue them and then sometimes that subjugation of them turns into something even worse Ooh, lots going on there <sighs> because of cassandra's current state then is the mad woman in the attic less worse in brightly burning than in jane Eyre? uh i would say this is less morally repugnant than Jane Eyre, if only because she is kept in the quote-unquote attic, not out of shame, but in order to protect her. But, you know, un unfortunately, oh, maybe it's not less morally repugnant. Well, she has to keep being medicated. Or she has those outbursts which involve, you know, nearly murdering people, her own son, because she believes that her son is actually her husband through her psychosis. So, oh, that, that almost comes out even, doesn't it? It's, it's interesting that she is drugged if she needs to be controlled, which we see in the scene where Stella finds out about her. And again, gosh, yeah, just calming people down with drugs seems so bad. It's almost like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, you know? If we need to calm someone down or take control of them, we're going to give you drugs. Mm -mm 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 -mm. The third act is high drama, high stakes. Jane is trying to get back and warn people about this virus. The guy who is politically in control of the population control officer who is the the mason stand-in which is really interesting is and his name's mason has her arrested she's about to be executed and things turn around and they make one last ditch effort to get to earth and and hugo has already gone down to earth and we thought maybe he was dead there are people living down there in earth who only speak mandarin which is really interesting and yeah, so then population, we're hoping, population grows and, and more ships are coming down and they start to make a society down there and everything. So one hopes that things will change down on Earth, but as we know, things may seem good in the beginning, but near the end, uh, or as time goes on and culture and society and community develops we still have some issues so again you know similar to the 100 I would say but my parting quote I think from this novel before I get into my rubric for judging it 
I was orphaned at seven, so I'm afraid my memories of the Empire aren't entirely pleasant. I thought you would have known some of this from my resume. Oh, I didn't read it, he said with total nonchalance. I trust Zhao to sort out these things. Well, she sends them to me, but I really don't pay attention. I did note your name and figured you'd be simple enough, not too full of yourself. What does that mean? My tone came out shriller than I would have liked. I dug my fingers into the chair's cushion to steady myself. Your parents named you Stella. Literally, Star. I reckon they were practical, simple folk. I like my name, I said through clenched teeth. I'd wear my teeth to points at this rate. And what does Hugo mean? Rude? Infuriatingly, he laughed, bright and full. And when our eyes locked, his reflected approval. I have no clue what it means, but you might be close. I like your fire. You'll do well with Jessa. Well, gee, I took offense at that since my name is Stella and I like it. Okay, so how does this adaptation and really reimagining fare in terms of Jane Eyre? Does it have the spirit of the book, the tone, the themes, the gothic, etc.? I would say yes. It's got a spooky tone. It's got some societal themes and issues with that. It has familial struggles, what it means to be an orphan familial pressures things like that so I would say yes is Jane or I'll say Stella relatable I as we have seen from my discussion above I would say yes and no it really depends on the situation but at times (sighs) at times I had trouble with Stella I don't know that it's necessarily only my I mean this is me right hmm Would it only be my experience? I don't think so. I think that overall she is sometimes relatable, sometimes not. Let's talk about her moral aptitude. Ooh, there is not, I don't think there was any religion in this. We may have had some religion. I think Zhao spoke of something and then there was somebody else too, another like really minor character that something was associated with him. So can't that that was interesting, but that might just be done not wanting to speak on that. I think some people, most people shy away from religion. So I guess that makes sense that that doesn't pop into this. Her faithfulness, especially to Jessa, her family, like, yeah, top notch Stella, Jessa, her family, her friends back on her uh, on the stalwart on that ship. Yeah, we've got that 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 Jane aspect down her responsibility oh absolutely not only of her ward Jessa her unfortunately her societal responsibility when she's forced to sit in the room during the party and then just her responsibility to life and the stalwart and those people and uh, Reed going back to see her before she dies truthfulness yep doesn't tell a lie She's forthcoming with Hugo at certain times. I think she she's mostly truthful with herself, though I think sometimes she doesn't understand why she may be feeling what she's feeling. And then her goodness absolutely comes through, especially with the virus where she's got to make some choices, some difficult choices. And, well, she's almost about to be executed because of what she does. There aren't any childhood scenes. So the most important person in her life is definitely George. (sighs) We understand what she's gone through from her telling of it and George also being an orphan. 
and how she speaks of it, not only in the beginning, but to Hugo as well. I think we get on board with it, and we, we get behind her pretty soon. And it's interesting that, like, Jane is not the only orphan in the world. George and Stella aren't the only ones who have lost someone during that first virus. So I think it's almost easier to get behind Stella because this tragedy was larger than Stella. Her relationships with those around her, I think, are perhaps even more developed here than in the source materials, specifically the flight crew on the Rochester. And then even when the Ingram party comes over, she's making friends with their crew as well. And she's got all the people on the stalwart. So she is a more well-rounded friend, I guess, or character who is able to communicate with and have relationships with other people than Jane who is really surrounded by the same people and that doesn't ever change. The relationship between Stella and Hugo it's interesting. <laughs> I think uh I don't know. You know, this is a problem because each adaptation I've been doing pulls me less and less away from believing the source material's love development. And I'm just getting confused and thinking, oh my gosh, maybe I don't necessarily believe in that love either. So this, I it develops. They have their nightly meetings, and I think through that, just getting to know each other. How her feelings, I don't know. She finds him really attractive. So I think a lot of it is lust-based in the beginning. At one point, he, like, is shirtless. I think that must have been the, the the first murder scene, almost murder scene that we saw. And so she has a feeling of it. So I think there is some, <laughs> there's lust as well as frustration. And then she, a mutual understanding and admiration and then developing in there. So I suppose like any teenage girl, this, this, that's how this love develops. It's interesting though, just to think about this love at this point in time, futuristic. It's also YA compared to, you know, how love developed back then and how it would have been slower and different ideals would have been put in place so I would say yes it is believable and the YA really pushes that forward I think just like oh yeah this is kind of the standard and we're going to fall into those tropes as well but I do like that she wrestles with her feelings for him like she's trying to figure out who he is, this brightly burning star, and also like, oh my, do I have these feelings for him? Is this weird? But the Ingram situation, ugh, always throws things for a loop. She's confused as well. But he does, I think, do right by Jane, even though he can't be direct about it. He does, at one point, Blanche, the Blanche stand-in, I don't think that was her name, takes Jane's room because it's right next to Hugo's. Ah, her name is Stella. Takes Stella's room because it's right next to Hugo. And then Hugo ends up giving it back to Stella, but it was through a bet and uh, a card game. So he can't be direct about it, but he is kind of trying to help her out and do right by her. And he does ask her, you know, should I marry... Ms. Ingram or should I not 
which actually shows poorly on him because he can't make up his own mind. And I guess he's it's both a test as well as uh, could you please help me in this decision, which you can't make that decision on your own. So that's interesting. The conflict that tears them apart is, of course, the virus, and it is believable in terms of the time period of this novel and that it is young adult and post-apocalyptic. That they're brought back together is still a bit, I don't know, I guess she loves him so much that she's willing to ignore his part in it. And yes, we do find out that he didn't play a part, but she still wants to get back to him. And for me, I wonder if, man, should you have just been like, oh, he's this terrible human being. He tried to kill off all of these people. Well, he didn't, right? But he played a part in this. I don't think I can trust him again. But everyone was going to go down to earth anyways. And I guess, you know, at the time and being young, those passions were aflame. And so she needed to go back to him. Okay, well, can this adaption stand alone? Or must you have read Jane Eyre to fully appreciate the work? I don't think you're going to get the homages to Jane Eyre unless you have read Jane Eyre. I'll say that. I think it can stand alone. It was really difficult for me in setting out these notes to begin with to really separate, you know, Jane Eyre source material from Brightly Burning because I wanted to be fair. But this is the cross that you carry with you as a writer saying Jane Eyre in space or saying it's based off of Jane Eyre is that well I'm going to be looking at Jane Eyre and and whether you hold up to it it has the spirit of Jane but not the law of Jane I would say and that's probably the right answer for any reimagining because if it's a reimagining you shouldn't be a one-to-one translation from the source material mm. Well, my notes were a bit all over the place, but hopefully you got a sense of what this novel was. I think, I guess my other question would be, would I recommend it? I think, yes, absolutely, if you are a Jane Eyre fan, if you're looking for a straight, you know, YA novel that's post-apocalyptic and deals with other issues, I think I would recommend others before this if that makes sense and it doesn't have the strongest female lead which is what I'm always looking for so the Jane Eyre factor is the main pull and so that's what you need to decide but you know it was a fun tale I think I would agree with that Goodreads rating for sure Okay, well, it's time for a break. When I return, I will be looking at Mrs. Rochester's Ghost by Lindsay Marcotte. When you think of podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. I kick ass for the Lord. Dorkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality. But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Well, think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. This is an occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes. 
with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history. Because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out dorknesstolight.blogspot.com for our more regular content. Or dorknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content. Memes and puns, mostly. My bad. Dorkness to light. Often irreverent, rarely sacrilegious. Welcome back to the second half of this episode. And it's about to get crazy. So in the words of the Honorable Samuel L. Jackson, hold on to your butts. So I'm going to be looking at Mrs. Rochester's Ghost by Lindsay Marcotte, which was published on August 1st, 2021 by Thomas and Mercer. It currently has a 4.03 out of 5 on Goodreads from 7,880 ratings, and I question every one of them. This is going to be a bit rough. Now, what's funny about this is this was the book that created this seed of an idea for this show. This popped up. My mother alerted me to it because it came through an Amazon Prime email and I had considered buying it in a hard copy. I thought, why not? But then I saw it was free for Kindle because I'm a Prime member. And then I thought, well, maybe that's safer. So then if I dislike it, I won't have waste money on it. (laughs) And I am glad that I did that. So this is also rough because I'm having, you know, if you're if you're a fan or a listener of Backworld the Oracle, I'm having some major previous, what would that be, like volume five or six of Backworld, the, the most recent feelings where I became very upset. So as I was reading this book, I became very upset and I found myself taking so many notes that I basically did a little journal where each day that I read, I would have a list of notes that I, feelings, thoughts, (laughs) comments and critiques. And it ended up being, I think, four and a half or just four single spaced notes. Now they are bolted, so don't be nervous. And so now I'm in this position of what do I do with these notes? You know what? Why not just have it out? And read all of these notes. So it's almost like you will travel with me each day that I read this. And it's only, I think, four days. I read about 50 to 70 pages of this book each day. I think it's just over 300 or 350 pages. And just jotting down the notes. To be fair, there are times that I have some sort of comment or critique that later on will be resolved. And I think I'll probably talk about that as well. That should it have been resolved as late as it did. I will continue to be as fair and respectful as I can be. I have a lot of issues. I think I would bring them up with the editor, which is often my point person that I have issues with that why aren't you catching this? But the author should also be held accountable to a certain extent. And some of you may also be thinking to yourself, Stella, why is this so important? Why are you, I don't know, so hard on this? Does it really matter? And let me tell you something. Jane Eyre 
is my number one, right? Now it's tied with Gone with the Wind, but it's my number one. I think it probably edges out Gone with the Wind because I've read Jane Eyre more, and I certainly, I think, well, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say I think I (laughs) relate more to Jane than I do Scarlet, but Scarlet does have some interesting uh, characteristics that I do relate to. But picture this, because I know that people don't love Jane Eyre. I mean, I assume if you're listening to this show that you at least have an interest in it. Otherwise, I don't know why you're doing this to yourself. But just imagine your favorite novel. You know, it could be Le Petit Prince, The Little Prince. It could be a Harry Potter. And then imagine, so you've got the most beloved novel you have that you keep going back to, you read multiple times, whether it's within your lifetime or once every year, whatever. So picture that novel. Now picture someone years later, could be a couple, could be several, could be a century later, decides they're going to be doing a reimagining of your favorite novel. Now you may be a little upset because why mess with a good thing? Your favorite novel is great the way it is, but you're going to give this new one, this reimagining, a fair shake. There's a lot of pressure here because depending on what your novel is, right? So if your favorite novel happens to be Fifty Shades of Grey, I think you and I are going to disagree on its literary merit, but I'm going to allow you to have that favorite novel for sure. But if you're picking things like La Petite Prince or Jane Eyre or Pride and Prejudice, I believe, even if you don't like Jane Eyre or Pride and Prejudice, that they should be upheld as a great literary work. I believe that objectively. I know that it seems like I'm biased, but I really do think, given its writing and its style, that, and and yes, it is with flaws, but it should be upheld as a great literary work. And because it is something that is so well known, there's a lot of pressure on you as an author to live up to that standard. And potentially that's unfair. You know, when you're comparing two different people, comparisons breed contention or uh, dissatisfaction. So we're always told, you know, don't compare. But you knew what you were doing when you decided you're going to do a reimagining of whatever this great novel is. And so I will pay you respect, but I am also going to hold you accountable for the things that you put in here. And that not only includes content, but that also includes writing style. So I'm going to lay that out right there, that I'm going to show respect but I'm also going to hold Marcotte and the editor, I should probably look up who the editor is, to the flame, feet to the fire, because they knew what they were doing and they let me down. So let us get into it. Okay, so I just had the publisher synopsis once again. In a modern and twisty retelling of Jane Eyre, a young woman must question everything she thinks she knows about love, loyalty, and murder. Jane has lost everything, job, mother, relationship, even her home. A friend calls to offer an unusual deal, a cottage above the crashing surf of Big Sur on the estate of his employer, Evan Rochester, who happens to also be his cousin. In return, Jane will tutor his teenage daughter. She accepts Evan's teenage daughter, let me clarify. But nothing is quite as it seems at the Rochester estate. Though he's been accused of murdering his glamorous and troubled wife, Evan Rochester insists she drowned herself. 
Jane is skeptical, but she still finds herself falling for the brilliant and secretive entrepreneur and growing closer to his daughter. And I will say that he is, he's been accused in the court of public opinion, so not officially, officially. Until later on, spoiler. And yet her deepening feelings for Evan can't disguise dark suspicions aroused when a ghostly presence repeatedly appears in the night's mist and fog. Jane embarks on an intense search for answers and uncovers evidence that soon puts Evan's innocence into question. She's determined to discover what really happened that fateful night, but what will the truth cost her? Okay, so let me begin, first of all, actually, just looking at the cover, just like I did with the previous book. The cover is actually pretty minimal, I guess, just minimalist, just like our previous book. It just has Mrs. Rochester's ghost and some lilies behind the font. It says that it's a thriller. And then three slashes, so it now appears, and this all becomes clear once you're actually reading because... When I was glancing at this without, you know, having read it, it just looks like maybe there are creases in whatever it is. But now you can tell that it looks like it might be a painting of lilies and then three slashes at different angles on it. And that all comes into play in the actual novel. So this is actually very appropriate comic-wise because it tells, to a certain extent, or gives a hint as to something that's actually pretty important, a pretty important detail within the novel itself. Lily, the portrait, the slashes in the portrait, the affair that Evan had, Mrs. Rochester, all of that stuff actually is shown right here on the cover. But again, you won't know that until you read the entire novel. So I enjoyed that cover. Just going through some characters, Jane is Jane. Mrs. Fairfax has turned into Otis Fairfax. Bertha is now Beatrice, so beautifying the name there. Edward is now Evander, a.k.a. Evan, which I actually really love, but that's because I'm a nerd for classics, and Evander just reminds me of the King Aeneas goes up to sea in Book 8 of the Aeneid in order to get supplies and men. And Adele is now Sophia, who is a product of a one-night stand, and he didn't know at the time he was a father, but this gets really complicated and confusing, and I think there are some continuity errors, (laughs) because different information is dropped at different times. The Beatrice point of view chapters, I really applaud, because they are so disorienting. So for the most part, this novel is narrated by Jane, which seems appropriate, but then there are chapters, sometimes in between every other chapter, sometimes maybe there would be two Jane chapters and then a Beatrice chapter. And as I said, because it's in her point of view, it's disorienting because she is struggling with some mental illness and I hear bipolar, I I hear uh, some sort of psychosis. I mean, it kind of was all, all the terms were thrown out, so I'm not really sure, but I liked it, how you didn't, you weren't sure what was going on, what she was doing, and increasingly it, it starts to become clearer, and it's obviously in the past, and it's all one day, basically, and then as you get closer and closer, you like realize, oh, what's happened. So I felt like that was pretty successful. You see what she thinks of her husband, whom she calls Jailer, and that he wants to get rid of her 
so potentially murder. So it immediately casts doubt on Otis's claims of Evan's innocence. But she is an unreliable narrator, sort of like if you've read Girl on the Train, where that narrator was usually hopped up on narcotics or drunk all the time, so you couldn't really trust what she had seen. Okay, so let's get into it, okay? So day one, first impressions, (laughs) after 40 pages, I see. Oh, gosh, this is going to be an interesting walk through the past. Okay, very brief insight into Jane's upbringing. There's no indication, oh, oh, there's no indication that the mother died. She actually uses died as a metaphor for her mother not remarrying after she became a widow. But then later in passing, which basically the mother died in off-panel land, Jane just mentions the smell of her mother's memorial flowers. And it came out of nowhere. Like, oh, wait, what? Her mother's dead? And we don't really explore that until later on in the novel. I mean, why not lay out where Jane is right at the beginning and just throw her cards out on the table? But Marcotte chooses to give us breadcrumbs of who Jane is throughout the novel and I could see that if Jane were the one that we're sort of investigating and we're not sure about but because she is our narrator and we're supposed to trust her and have this intimate relationship with her I feel like let's just put it out there and understand who Jane is right at the outset. There's really no idea. I have no idea. Remember, this is day one. I had no idea about the relationship between Jane Jane and Otis, except that they've known each other for a while, and he's like her younger brother. But how did they meet? What's the clown? Now, later on, we do find out about the clown lounge and how Otis and Jane met bartending there. But again, we are just asked to, like, understand whatever this relationship is, and that, of course, you would trust him to take his recommendation and come on over to Big Sur. We have an establishment of Jane in terms of career. She was writing for a television series. The series got canceled. But wouldn't there be other opportunities for her? So this was a bit confusing. She basically decides that she needs to give up everything. And by everything, I mean like where she's living, uh, the town that she's living. She's not going to be working anymore. So she's basically unemployed and homeless. I'm not really sure about that. But on day three, I did realize that, I have no idea whether it was mentioned before, that it was only for the summer. <laughs> I don't think I missed that before. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had that. So we do later find out that I guess she has plans for the fall. So she's only going to stay at the Rochester Manor for the summer. But I don't know if that is true, why she would sell her apartment and not sublet it for three months far-fetched to have Jane as a tutor and even she admits it and Otis says well you know French and you can do some maths and earth science I mean this is a 13 year old that she's about to tutor we're getting into more specific concepts and complicated things now so that does not make sense whatsoever and I think I complain about it on a later day Jane who right off the bat she is paranoid and making insane leaps she puts on a nightdress and feels erotic and sensual and wonders where that came from she also sees a woman in a Range Rover and is like well oh my gosh what if that's the dead Beatrice I mean why would that be the first thought that you would have and even before that she believes that Otis is hiding something from her when he gives her the details but there really is no indication that that could be true from the reading it's almost as if you have to really dive inside the book in Jane's head in order to understand that she senses something that we don't get 
Now we could give her the benefit of the doubt since she likes ghoulies. That was her. That, that was what the show was all about. So her mind just in, is inclined to see these sorts of things. Maybe we've got some drama with the thirteen-year-old. Drugs, alcohol, of course, and we will see how that sorts itself out. I do have a later complaint on a later day. The first encounter with Rochester I thought was pretty good. He's got a motorcycle rather than a horse. He asks what she is at first, which I thought was right up his alley. He's brusque. And here, and I like this, Jane knows that it's Rochester. Whereas in the OG Jane air, she is unsure who this person is and is shocked to find out that the man that she dehorsed was desaddled. What is that called? was in fact Rochester when she meets him for the first time in his study in front of the the fire but this puts them yeah on equal footing I think she's not at a disadvantage since she knows automatically that it's Rochester so the author has oh man this this continues throughout so Marcotte unnecessarily has internal monologue with Jane in this section, as I say. Actually, it's the entire book. And by that, I mean italicized, like her thoughts, basically. And I say unnecessary because the novel is already in first person. Now, I have read, and I think you probably you have as well, novels that are in third person. And within that third person, there might be an italicized section and it will change to first because it's that person, whomever you're following, that person's internal musings. That completely makes sense. You don't do that when you're first person already. She could just tell that to us rather than thinking it it was so confusing it doesn't make sense at all this is uh probably the meanest I will be is just that I felt like the writing was not advanced at all I felt like they were short and choppy sentence structures now this was day one I I, kind of evens out I think towards the end but my comparison would be I this it's going to seem offensive, but I just want to say that I I like, you know, just reading fun romance novels. And when I purchase these romance novels or, you know, get them from the library, I'm not looking for high literature. Like, that's not the point. You know, I'm, I'm looking for the romance because I'm a shipper. And sometimes the writing is problematic. There might be grammar errors. I might see something that, wait, that doesn't make sense. Where did, how did she or he get there? And... I, I give them I, I give them that grace. But again, going back to what I said earlier, if you're writing a reimagining of Jane Eyre, you've got to show that in everything, not only content, but in how you are delivering it. So I just had problems with how it was written as well. And I thought, well, I should give Marcotte Grace. This could be her first novel. It's not her first novel. It's not her first rodeo, folks. So I'm going to hold her feet to the fire. Let's see. On page 46, I note there is a Stella reference. I was finding it a little easier to stare back. He looked no more handsome than he had in the dark. If anything, the interior lighting emphasized the crag of his forehead and the scruffiness of his beard. He'd taken off the young Brando biker jacket and was now in a white pocket tee with a slight rip at the shoulder, giving him a young Brando and streetcar appearance. I had the image of him throwing back his head and howling, Stella! Smothered. (laughs) Smothered another giggle? What do you mean? I smothered, see what I mean? I smothered another giggle. She just used 
That is a participial phrase. You can't do that by itself anyways. Okay. Back, back, back to it. Jean, oh, I'm going to say this a lot. I, you know, I was reading this at times, at slow times in the office, and I would shake my head, and someone would ask, you know, what's wrong? And I would have to say, like, this is just insane. But Jane is really bizarre sometimes. At one point, she says she imagined her aunt who ran off when she was three, looked like a giant frog. Good heavens. Now, the Aunt Froggy, I think, is is a nomenclature that we go from here on, and it kind of makes sense because her voice was froggy, but still, it's a bit weird until you have the whole picture. And that's what's true with this book, and I don't know, maybe I'll try to remember to talk about this at the end. This book is almost like a painting where you see all these details but things don't really make sense or come together until you take a step back and see it all together and I don't know if that's how it should be or not for a thriller mystery yes but like a detail like that like okay I envision my aunt as a frog wow that's weird so as a detail I'm looking close and then later on should that be couldn't she have said I imagine my aunt as a frog because her voice was you know frog-like I don't know the Sophia timeline and tragedy doesn't stay consistent first her mom died a couple years ago and then Jane uses the she recently lost her mom argument to explain her behavior and then Rochester didn't know about her until a year ago it was very confused was she alone until someone tracked her down why did she send a card to Beatrice in one of those chapters did she know about Evan I don't know I couldn't really wrap my head around all those details Jane is really all about Rochester murdering his wife and it seems really dumb that she is suspicious and letting her mind get away with itself then I think well I guess it works since he was in fact under suspicion and then I remember she took a job knowing full well for whom she was working and I ask you folks in the same are are you desperate enough to work for a potential murderer I don't think so oh man okay she has a migraine and this happens twice I think which was weird that it didn't happen more I think it probably should have happened at the climax of the novel but she gets this interesting migraine where she has flashbacks that come in at weird flashes and so all of a sudden you know she has this migraine and we're getting all these flashbacks of Jane and getting to know her and I'm just thinking this is so bizarre I've never heard of this before but we'll go with it but is this really the best way to get to know her history that of her failed relationship with a painter and then the betrayal by her BFF no and again this only happened twice if it happened more often and I don't want it to happen I mean twice just seems like you did it once to do some stuff for plotting but you didn't want it to be a one-off so you had to do it again but I think and I can't even say when these migraines were happening but you know I think the stress of encountering Beatrice at the end should have maybe set off a migraine as well but we didn't go that far so that was a question and that ends day number one of my reading of mrs rochester's ghost so then we go into day number two we find out who mason is he is known as richard in this novel he says his sister owen was the person that jane thought was his dead sister stalking her says his sister wasn't suicidal but bipolar evan abused her killed her for money to keep his own financial speculation afloat so now we've got some more doubt cast upon evan 
Difficult history for Beatrice, a.k.a. Birdie. I see this on page 61. Born B.D. June McAdams, meth head mom, unknown dad, got shuttled in and out of various foster homes in the Florida panhandle. Discovered at 14 by a photographer at a middle school swim meet. Modeled locally for a couple of years and signed with Elite, changing her name to the more uppity class Beatrice. With her older brother Richard as guardian, moved to Manhattan and launched a hugely successful career. Also, as I'm reading this, can you see the choppiness of the sentence structure that I was talking about? Over the next 10 years, on and off the list of most highly paid models in the world, three times on the cover of Sports Illustrated, tying with Chrissy Brinkley, but two fewer than Elle McPherson. That would have been like a bulleted list. That's how that read to me. So difficult history, just getting to know her, I think maybe having some empathy and and trying to understand where she came from. And also this is just like outside uh, with the POV from Beatrice herself. You get to see like she's actually not as much of a – she's a character that I think you should be conflicted about. Like absolutely have empathy for but also condemning some of the things that she's doing. She's a noted swimmer. I note it. So does Jane. But it is only in middle school. But then, you know, her brother said that she was a competitive swimmer. I'm not really sure when that happened. I mean, wasn't her modeling career already taking off? So why was she swimming? But the swimming is a huge point. So this is something that needed to be cleared up because that's how she survived jumping into the water. Why would Jane trust Rick? aka the brother, to go have a drink with him and hear all about what his thoughts are on Evan. Jane is dumb, which is probably, I hope is the only time I'm going to say this, but her curiosity outweighs her sense of safety. Now remember, he was following her with his Range Rover and disobeying traffic laws. He was creating a dangerous situation. I just don't think she thinks some things through. Oh my gosh. This is not how tutoring works, by the way. You need experience you need a degree probably in the subject area or else you may be relaying incorrect information and even then mistakes are made we hear that jane is quote pretty good at french end quote she spent a year in france sophomore year of college otis did actually tell jane that she would have to do maths despite what she remembers i remember it well and then why would you teach a 13-year-old the words for skank and bitch in French instead of having a conversation about other ways she could deal with the mean girl? Not really sure that Jane is the best <laughs> mentor that we could have. In a flashback, I feel like Beatrice also makes poor choices. So maybe, oh, maybe Marcotte does a good job of doing the dichotomy or the contrast between Jane and Bertha or in this case Beatrice but she actually goes Beatrice goes this is how she met Evan she went to a secluded cave with a man that she just met I think it portrays Beatrice poorly because she asks her brother's financial advice on Evan and then portrays Evan well because he doesn't sleep with her when she invites him inside her room and we also see that there's a bit of an entrapment because she knew about her mental state or her prognosis and her brother is basically like coaching her like yeah but you need to do this quickly so that you can have the financial security 
When Jane goes to the tower, she sees the brutally damaged Amadeo Modigliani painting. And that, this was when I was like, oh, wow, this is what a gothic tale feels like. So I thought that was good. Jane starts to be turning around now. She knows that her eyes are playing tricks on her, even though Evan is agitated. And she's reading that. The Jane of a few pages prior probably would have said that it was Beatrice, at least internally, when she starts to see things outside of the tower there's a continual attraction to evan and here she feels safe which i think maybe contradicts some of her previous statements chapter nine seems to be a bit better in terms of story and my interest so just be aware that you know there are good moments in here as well i did wonder how a private investigator would know more about jane's father's death than the family but this actually makes sense later since Shane was a child when it happened and her mother actually kept the truth from her or at least pieces of it. Okay, so that was day two where I Jane was doing questionable things. I was annoyed with Jane, but then it had a gothic feel to it and then Jane starts to, you know, turn it around and we also see that she's beginning to become attracted to Evan and maybe that doesn't make sense, but we'll go with it. Okay, day three. Seems a bit better. I can't remember Wade (laughs) O'Connor, which is bad since this is a character. I maybe Wade is Helen because they have like early past history, but I really couldn't tell who the Helen character was. It could be Otis. I don't know. But anyways, so I couldn't remember who Wade was. Uh, I thought that this was bad since apparently he's been in communication with Jane frequently in the novel. I don't know if I missed it or it just wasn't there. But he is shocked to hear her theories about the ghost, about Evan. But he doesn't dissuade her from them, which just seems poor. And just remember this about Wade and also his wife that they hear her. They... (laughs) encourage her to a certain extent and but they don't encourage her to leave very well oh boy jane could be an olympian with the leap she makes scratch penmanship in a book equals scratches on the portrait yes she looks at scratches in a book and she thinks oh my goodness those look like the slash marks made on that portrait and another thing, she looks at an image of steeple-fingered Mary Magdalene, and oh my goodness, that looks like the rock formation and must therefore be what Beatrice called Mary. What? What? Okay. The attraction on Jane's side, at least, is growing. I think now the development is believable. They have frequent walks and conversations, but It's been three weeks, and she feels his absence, which may be a little intense, and maybe a bit too much. Now, Jane does fall into a trap that I had once fell into in real life, which is believing other people's stories about someone. Now, there's already a great amount of doubt over Evan, which doesn't help, but I think she needs to allow herself to make up her own mind, just like you listeners, I think, even though I'm going to be pulling out all the stops on this novel need to make up your own mind on this novel as well 
suddenly Beatrice's chapters are getting to be like Gone Girl. Absolutely 100% if you've ever read Gone Girl because basically Beatrice is doing something with a razor of blood, some hairs, both of hers and Evan's and ripped clothing all in a bag. Who knows what she's doing? I figured out. I mean, obviously you find out, but yeah, it's it's totally Gone Girl. How does Ricky, presumably also a child, know how to manage riptides? And he actually throws his sister in one and tells her to figure it out. Well, there you go. Also, <laughs> oh, yes. If you've seen Old the film which I don't necessarily recommend but if you've seen it you know that you should not cut yourself with a rusty blade even if it quote wasn't too rusty end quote which is something that Beatrice does and um, I think that might lead to some diseases for sure okay are the flowers tulips or are they lilies can we come down with something I think we do and we decide that they're lilies but just be aware of that there should be consequences if Sophia leaves the lesson and gives an attitude. But Jane, again, she's a poor tutor and just kind of lets her go and, and gives her that, which is not good. Oh, gosh. Evan touches her face with a scratch. A little too much there. Also consent? Question mark. Suddenly, Otis is saying some neg- negative things about Evan when he was the only one to constantly defend him. That's a bit curious, and that gets more and more. Chapter 15 certainly has the gothic feel to it of Jane thinking she'll find a skeleton in the closet once she visits Beatrice's room. So we, that's probably the best part maybe, is without her wild leaps and like, oh my gosh, could that be a dead woman? The feeling, I think the tone at times is there, especially when she is investigating. Day four. Okay, so her close friends with quotation marks, Kiko and Wade come to visit and they not only buy into her gothic fantasies, just like I said, but actively encourage them in a way and encourage her to leave Evan, but don't drag her out of there even though they feel like it's a dangerous situation. So words and actions are not aligning here. If you feel like your friend's in danger, you need to get her out of there. While mere pages before she admitted that she is falling in love with Evan to herself and to us, when her close friends, again, with quotation marks ask her about her feelings for him she lies what kind of friends are those i get confused when this happens when you've already admitted it to yourself why lie to those you most likely trust the most (laughs) i don't i guess it's you know when people say well it's one thing admitting it to myself it's another thing saying it out loud but isn't it the most difficult to admit it to yourself i don't know okay every day Every day, I'm saying Jane is making leaps, and it's getting obnoxious now. Now she's trying to connect Evan with Liliana, with Beatrice, with the burn mark, with the destroyed painting. Whoa. Jane should probably have a detective badge with what she's coming up with. Okay, okay. Now as a shipper, I'll admit I got some butterflies when Evan and Jane first kissed. And even though she's in love with him, at least she recognizes the danger and makes it a point of figuring out what actually happened with Beatrice before she gets involved with him. And she kind of lies to himself. I should say too involved with him. And even then, that's a lie. Oh, boy. The attack on Ricky, which is similar to Mason's attack, of course, is not as straightforward as the original. It's a mystery what actually happened, and I'm not even sure that Evan knows. And we kind of figure, find out about it, or Jane figures it out a bit at the end of the novel. 
Oh boy. Okay. So things are getting worse now with the things that Evan may have done. Maybe now he did away with his parents. Now, Jane makes a good point that more than one tragic event can happen to someone. And she can relate to that, obviously, losing her her father, her mother, her job, her boyfriend, her best friend. That's, golly, wow. You really punched her down, didn't you, Marcotte? Okay. But it brings me to a point that I want to discuss about something from Jane Eyre that doesn't age well in modern times as a reimagining unless done well. If there is a sinister quality about the man, number one, why would you go there? And number two, why would you not leave it your earliest opportunity, right? So Jane, OG Jane, didn't have a lot of options. In fact, Mrs. Fairfax was the only letter she received back in regards to the notice she put out for being a governess okay so she goes over there there's something weird going on but she feels drawn to edward and she cares for adele and she hasn't been in danger other people have been in danger but there's nothing that would make her think that edward is a dangerous man okay so when we make that into modern times where now we've got there's some suspicion here depending on whether the Edward stand-in is under suspicion for something or this house is a bit weird or people are getting in danger you would question that for sure and I think if you weren't getting reasonable answers which every time I feel like I've seen an Edward or Edward stand-in they don't lie very well and the our protagonist doesn't believe them and my question is why would you stay there so in terms of you know questionable things that don't really (laughs) convert well to modern times I think you would probably get out of dodge you're like why is this man lying to me what's going on here I think maybe it's just not worth it I love Adele but maybe I gotta get out of here and this is even worse because she could have looked up all about Evan She, even though I didn't, was getting a sense from Otis that something was being hidden. So there's a lot of stuff against this potential contract of employment that she probably never should have said yes. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And I I think the attraction or the, the love interest is not strong enough to prevent you from leaving. So... I just have to say that. So I think you have to be really cautious in how you modernize this potential tale. It Number one, it either doesn't make sense or it completely, I think, separates you from the protagonist in respect because we should be 100% on Jane's side. And when she's making crazy decisions like that or choosing to ignore things, you've lost me. You've lost my backing of you and that's a problem for this particular novel. So Jane hears all the rumors and other people telling her things. And yes, I did say watch out for that. But also, if there's a proliferation of something, it most likely is based off of some fact. I mean, some of these stories are wild, but it's all coming back and all rooted around the same idea that there was something toxic going on between Evan and Beatrice. And so if there's a singular idea there, maybe you should prick up your ears and figure out or get out, right? 
I don't know how uh, Kiko knows all the ins and outs of what Evan is doing with his business, but she clearly serves as a way to give some exposition. So I guess I can ignore that it's kind of weird coming at this stage and who are you anyways, but hey, thank you for the information. Oh, geez. Okay, so Jane ends up texting Ricky. I thought it was a bad idea, even though it is kind of her to check on him, so that's a very Jane thing to do. But... If you could read these texts, I feel like two intelligent human beings are not going to use texting lingo, especially a lawyer. It's just obnoxious. Obnoxious. Especially when, yeah, when adults use it. I mean, I use lols all the time. But for the most part, all of my texts are pretty grammatical with punctuation. Even if you don't have punctua- punctuation, I'm not going to put a letter you uh, for Y-O-U. Very bizarre. Anyways, I'll get off that soapbox. Now, Otis is acting suspicious. So here we go. More suspicion. The scene where Evan shows Jane exactly where he saw his wife enter the water and proving that she couldn't have survived, which mm, that's what I think too, is just a middle school competitive swimmer. But that whole scene reminds me of my cousin Rachel and Daphne du Maurier, especially the... I think it was a walkway or a a roped bridge i think it depends well i was gonna say on the adaptation i can't remember what it is in the actual book but that of course is is the big key to what happens at the end okay liliana we find out she is ingrid and then annunciata it took me a while but annunciata who is a housekeeper she is grace pool and her drinking which is really interesting which she doesn't do she only does it this one scene but anyways her drinking is definitely uh, I shouldn't even say that her drinking is due to a tragic past losing her family I think there's a cartel I can't remember the details Otis oh gosh yeah so here I have this is day four right even though his name's Otis Fairfax and so clearly you'd think it would be Mrs. Fairfax it seems like maybe now he's Helen but there are just you know some strange uh, I don't know I I just feel like it doesn't match well could you choose one or the other or is it this Wade character and again Helen remember how important I'm saying Helen is what had Otis done to help Jane out in her history I I guess they both helped each other out but did he ever change her worldview I don't know the bartending I don't know it's it's kind of hard it's it's wishy-washy I don't have as much of an emotional investment in well maybe that's not the right phrase I don't feel as intimate a connection with Otis as I should if he is the Helen Standen there's some strange conflicts and arguments that come up Oh, geez. Jane is usually the one in control, Otis says. Or, you treat me like a screw-up. And I'm like, when did that When did that happen? When has she ever done that? I don't necessarily see this as furthering Jane's character. And then, again, is that what a Helen stand-in would do? No, I don't think so. Okay, final day, people. Nope, that's a lie. Sorry, two days left. <laughs> so day five. Okay, yeah, quote from Otis. You were the last person I thought would be taken in by him. Huh. What what does that mean? That she, you know, her head on her shoulders? That's, golly, both, I guess, a compliment and an insult all at the same time. That she apparently can see through everything. She doesn't take any BS. But the wool was pulled over her eyes as well. But then again, he was defending Evan, so I'm not really sure where this is coming from. 
Evan admits to killing his parents by not reporting that his seat slid back in a in a plane unexpectedly mid-flight and this caused him to lose his grip on the controls briefly and then he because he didn't report that that happens to his parents and they lost control but he doesn't know exactly what happened so jane of course tries to cheer him up but he he does say that he killed his parents good on jane for finally standing up for herself at the party yes uh evan is all over liliana i shouldn't say all over but it's very suspicious and she's asking if he's gonna go sleep with her because they got separate rooms and he's saying no 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 and she's just like i'm not gonna be let along so i thank you jane for finally getting a backbone i wish she had stuck to her guns when evan meets her at the airport so she ends up leaving at one point to see her froggy aunt and when she comes back oh there's evan i think there's some sort of layover and she ends up acquiescing and and traveling with him and i just thought why did you really need to i mean you decided he was he was no good persona non grata you should just stuck with that also if otis was so worried about jane and jane and evan in particular i'm not really sure why he would tell evan where she is i mean he could have evan could have been threatening maybe Otis but (sighs) character actions motivations thoughts don't make sense the conversation between Jane and Sophia is both heartbreaking and dramatic drama gets ramped up remember that Sophia is the Adele stand-in so the drama gets ramped up with talk of nudes being sent to classmates and then a rating system that the guys are doing after saying oh yeah this is the transition that all comes up because Sophia says that Jane will be okay because she's pretty and that (laughs) Sophia is not and she has the ratings from middle school boys to prove it what sort of transition is that and uh, okay number one really poor transition number two you have an opportunity Marcotte to speak on a real world issue, this real world issue, and what should be done. So not only are we having young women send in pictures of themselves in various states of undress to not only one classmate, but to many or that one classmate is passing along, and then that classmate and and his classmates, all the peers, are having a rating system on beauty. So this happens. This happened at the school that I worked. So no school is safe from that. But Sophia basically just says, please don't tell Evan. Please don't, you know, go, you know, tell anyone about this. And she's just going to deal with it. This is poor. Not only in the real world where, and oh, I should say that Jane says, sure, sure, I won't say anything. And, and that's that's it it's born the real world because something does need to be done about that i think with social media and just technology in general it's so dangerous and especially for young adults and now we've we've got young women in this scenario right but again true life being seen as a commodity almost being given a grading scale but also them being either so bold or so self-conscious potentially enough, and I know that sounds weird, right, to put themselves out there like that in order to get some sort of approval 
from their classmates and really putting it out on the line there because then when they're getting low ratings, how damaging that is. So, whoo, to end that conversation there and not do anything is just so problematic. In terms of the fictional world, Jane needed to step up. I think we, this is our responsibility as adults as educators as parents as friends like no one was in that in that group necessarily stepping up and you get that because there's a lot of fear there right with the with that 13 year old all those girls would have been very fearful of it and you know that when one narcs as they say they're going to get shunned and they're going to be they're going to be the bad guy because everyone got in trouble but that is the only way unfortunately to change that behavior so if Adele uh, if Sophia or Jane had done something in this scenario Sophia oh my gosh Sophia's not even going to that school really anymore she could go anywhere else so fix that issue because those Young men need to be held accountable. Fix that issue and then protect her, protect the other women. Let Sophia go to another school, solve that issue, and, you know, potentially get off of social media because you know that they would hound her. But in being silent, you are not protecting the young women who have now become victims to a certain extent, right? Even though they were the ones to put themselves out there for whatever motivation, they they have now become victims of something that's very sinister. And number two, you are almost silently condoning the actions of the young men. They are acting with impunity now. They are not being punished for this. And so this is a exactly why something like boys will be boys gets at me because that we're saying when we say boys will be boys we're saying that as a culture as a society we don't know what to do with them we we just let it go like oh that they'll grow up out of that but they won't unless you hold them accountable to their actions and young boys right 13 year olds that are consuming nude pictures from their classmates and rating them then turn into you know sexual predators because they feel like well you know consent has been given or like this happened and, and nothing happened to me I didn't get in trouble so let's step it up and that might be a leap to you and there definitely will be steps in between but if we don't tell them that this is poor behavior you need to respect your classmates you need to respect young women you need to be leaders and turn this world around you are crafting uh, a very dangerous and a toxic human being so in the fictional world jane failed in what she did do and what she didn't do and in the real world marcotte failed because that was just poor poor writing I think she could have done something there and don't even tell me that you know we're in a Jane Eyre novel there's no need to have any sort of social commentary give me a break the original Jane Eyre is full of social commentary about feminism about religion about beauty and financial or social status so Marcotte Ah, oh, you could have done something great here and you really, you let me down with it.
Okay, so now here we have the final day. This is day six. Oh boy, so Jane, waffling, do I want to see him or do I not? Decide, Jane, and get it over with and stop bothering me. Why does Evan tell the truth now? Jane demanded the truth and called him out hard before this. And he kept lying at the party. He kept lying. But now he's saying, you're right about all that, but trust me now and I'll never lie to you again. You've got to earn my trust, Buster. That's golly. To hear trust me from a liar is problematic. Okay. Why did she sleep with him again? (laughs) Where's your backbone, Jane? Where is your backbone? Jane at one point says Annunciata believed in ghosts, but I didn't. Excuse me, ma'am. Has the author read the previous 300 pages that she's written? Because Jane was believing in ghosts. Believe you me? Oh, heavens above. Okay. I will always love you from Evan. Do I believe this? I don't. (laughs) Here's a question. Could Jane Eyre exist without the death of the Bertha or the Bertha Standen? Because I wondered to myself, did Beatrice need to die? I I wanted her to not jump into the water and commit suicide for reals this time. So, gosh, if you've read The Air Affair by Jasper Ford... You will know that, yes, a Jane Eyre can exist, but she will not be with Edward. Okay, so that's that's the issue, that Beatrice or Bertha is standing in the way of Jane and Edward. And in the OG, it makes sense because everything was leading up to, I think, this climactic battle and the use of fire and everything. This one, she's been living out in this cave. She's been doing okay. She's been stealing some things, maybe an attack here or there. (laughs) But I feel like, and now she's gotten found out, right? But she is so close. She sees Evan. I think there's still something there that she could have been pulled back from the edge and gotten help. Now, would Jane and Evan have been together? No. But in terms of the the feeling of this novel, of what I get, and the plot, and how Jane has been really on the fence with Evan anyways and sort of forcing herself almost to 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 ignore the suspicions and love him I feel like we would have been I would have been okay if this Jane and this Evan were not together and maybe focusing on mental health and trying to help people but as it is it's like well we've got to get rid of Beatrice Mm, I'm gonna toss her over here and she's gonna die even though Evan tries to save her and it's just as I don't know of course, if, you know, the OG, like, yeah, that's got to happen. But with this and the feelings of it, it just, it doesn't ring true to me. <laughs> okay, so now Jane apparently had a good old time as a tutor, and she gets a job as a volunteer teaching assistant. She's going in for a master's in education because she feels like through Sophia she had a skill at teaching. Really? (laughs) Not from what I've seen, but we'll go with it. Kiko still doesn't trust Evan and tells Jane to keep her eyes open. And Jane says, my eyes are wide open. That's a direct quote. And I wonder, not for the first time, why she's marrying him. Because I think we're in the epilogue at this point. And then she says, I can never be absolutely certain of what happened. I'll always be haunted by his lies. 
Dear listeners, does that sound like Janer to you? Does that sound like you should be marrying someone that you're not certain of them? You're not sure if you're going to believe them afterwards? You're going to think back to all those lies? What? Okay, so that's the end. That was day six. I finished it. So the big thing now is... And you'll have to let me know. You'll have to write in and be like, please never do that sort of format ever again. I don't think I will. It's just there were so many, there was a flurry of thoughts going through my head that this was the only way I could get them all down. So I think it was okay. It reminded me of comic reviews. But I think everything will will get back to quote unquote normal after this. Let's go through my rubric of how I judge these adaptations and as I said it's always changing and even between the first part and this part I've added something which is is there an intimacy between Jane or the Jane stand-in and me as a reader okay spirit of the book the tone the themes the gothic feeling etc I think the gothic feelings were acceptable to successful, depending on how they were used. The acceptable ones were, okay, she's seeing things that she her hackles are up, and she, maybe they're ghost-like, and we can give grace to her because she's, she's always believed in that and the TV show and everything, but she's also making leaps, so I don't know, to successful, oh, the tower, seeing this scarred image, going into Beatrice's room. Yeah, those are really, I think, great moments. The themes, beauty, I don't think really stood out much as a theme with the exception of what I just complained about in regards to Sophia and that issue. And Jane does talk about Liliana's beauty and Rochester, I feel like, seems more attractive than normal. But yeah, it's it's not something that really filters through the whole thing. Social distinctions, religion, of course, is completely absent. They're not much. I mean, because it's a quote-unquote thriller, I think we're kind of going more into that and less into commentaries, which, again, is, is well, that just creates a distinction between Marcotte's and Bronte's. Is Jane relatable? I'm going to have to say no. I had to think about that. <laughs> Could I put everything aside that I think of, you know, that she's she was ridiculous and acting very bizarre and doing things that I disagreed with? I don't think so. I think even even though I'm thinking from my own, like, moral ethical <laughs> standpoint or what I would do, and then also thinking, well, there are other people that maybe, I really don't. I'm I'm hoping that there would be smarter people out there and that not everyone makes these wild leaps. Like I would I would probably call you crazy if I heard some of these things that you were saying. So I will say no. I would also say that there is no intimacy between Jane and me as a reader. She doesn't craft it. She doesn't speak out to me, which maybe Marcotte just didn't want to do. Maybe she thought that would have been campy. I don't know. But yeah, I don't. She just seems... Even though it's I, it's it's first person, she seems so separate from me that I can't, I can't really, it's hard for me to get behind her, which is really difficult to say. And that's not something that I want to say. That's something that should not be said about a Jane Eyre adaptation or reimagining. Because again, I think with the protagonist and especially someone like Jane, 
it, it's all about this intimacy crafted between Jane and the reader and that you are just behind and supporting Jane 100% because if not yeah it's 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 hard to I think believe or buy into what she's doing if if you're not behind her okay what is her character like and also her moral aptitude so reverence uh again there's no religion in this novel so that's hard to say maybe reverence for maybe there's a slight well uh, I don't know depending on I might scratch that if I just keep reverence in regards to religion we can do that I was just thinking of reverence towards particular people but I don't think she really has that necessarily anyone that she like looks up to looks up to with the exception of maybe her friend from yoga that she meets maybe I don't know faithfulness yes to Sophia yes to Otis not to Evan because she's consistently suspicion of and even as his wife I don't think there's necessarily a faithfulness because her mind I think is always going to be wondering so ooh, not so much awareness of responsibility yes given her job duties anything more than that I mean this you know if you were to give a report card these are all like middling grades or satisfactory almost it's not like above and beyond yes absolutely like the OG veracity her truthfulness to herself yes to others no she lies to her quote-unquote good friends and she is pretty honest to Evan at least like when they first start I guess when they their second kiss and they almost sleep together she ends up stopping it because she can't fully trust him and she says so so she's truthful to him who even knows like (laughs) would you marry would he marry her if he knew that you know she's always going to be haunted by his lies and that she doesn't know truly what to believe oh my gosh but what type of marriage is that and then her goodness yeah I guess it's everything's sort of mixing up together but you know she didn't do anything that was morally questionable with the exception of I guess sleeping with him when she didn't fully trust him for the most part I mean she she is kind and she helps people out she checks in on Rick right and tries to tries to love Sophia so Yes, but again, satisfactory. You know, it's not anything that blows me out of the water with her goodness. So I I guess like a human being, potentially like an actual, (laughs) a relatable human being maybe. Okay, childhood scenes. Who are the most important people in her life? Not many childhood scenes. There are some flashbacks, of course. And then we get some with the her best friend falling in love with her boyfriend or boyfriend cheating on her. And... The deaths that she had, losing her jobs. Most important people in her life, I guess, are Otis and Wade and, and Kiko. But again, the Wade and Kiko, I, I don't know where they came from until we were really focusing on them. How do we understand what she's gone through? The flashbacks, uh, the tellings uh, of things dotted throughout. But this, this is something, I guess, that now I can bring back up again. I'm not sure that I like how it's spaced out like that. Is there a better way? Now, we don't need an info dump, but I just didn't like how there were just random moments where all of a sudden we would be elucidated on, you know, how Otis and she met or what happened to her father and 
the mother and her aunt and all of this, it was just like, why, why are we, why is this happening now? If you're three quarters of a novel through and you're not on the narrator's side, the protagonist's side, why is, is this like a last ditch, a Hail Mary in order for us, the readers to get on her side? You've got to, you've got to lock that in the first hundred pages. I've maybe even sooner, maybe, you know, the first two chapters, I think that's a lot to ask, but seriously, yeah, 50 to 100 pages, I better be locked in, 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 loving and believing in the protagonist I mean that's certainly true for the OG for me that's true for something like Hunger Games for me I'm trying to think of oh Elemental P absolutely true for me like really soon I'm on the side of those people so it's just like the radio play where Jane was beat down so much it's like I can't do anything else but feel sorry for her and she doesn't necessarily show conviction afterwards or grit. It's just like, I've been forced to do this and this is all I can do. And she doesn't even make, it's not like she sought out a position. It came to her. So it, uh, my goodness, who is Helen in this? Who is the Helen stand-in? I honestly don't know. It could be Otis, but he does not have the spirit or the law of Helen. And oof, yeah. I don't even know what to say about that necessarily because I don't know who Jane was as a child versus what she became and whether Otis had any impact on that. Not sure. How are her relationships with those around her? So Fairfax I talked about, which is confusing since he's either Fairfax or he's Helen. Good. Obviously, there's some weird tension and conflict that I think is forced upon us that's unnecessary. Sophia, plus and minus. I mean, there's some really good moments where you see it, but again, real missed opportunity. And I don't get the sense of, you know, her staying for Sophia or her really looking out for Sophia because she herself wasn't looked out. I don't get that sense there. She doesn't really have any of the reads. Yeah, her aunt, this is... She has a quick connection with Aunt Froggy and they become, I mean, her aunt was estranged from her mother and then once Jane finds her aunt, she visits her and quick, quick reconciliation, even though they weren't, they they didn't need to be reconciled and we see later on froggy ends up i think being at the marriage like they still have a relationship so there is no damaging relationship with that there's no sinjin in here which again is it's interesting that people are dropping the sinjin rivers i wonder why that like let's not have a reverse harem let's not have a love triangle let's just keep it simple seems to be the case we'll see if that continues its trend throughout this limited series relationship between jane and quote-unquote edward is the love believable too soon too fast for me i think it's it's a slow burn in the og and here three weeks and she's already like feeling his absence she's falling in love with him once they get started yeah, I think it's engaging. I mean, it feels more like a, a modern romance that I would read potentially. But relationship is hard. I would say that, yeah, it's romance and adalliance, but relationship is a bit hard. I do like their walks, so I guess there is a depth to it. But again, oh my gosh, haunted by his lies, still suspicious. Is that a relationship? So, ugh. 
I think the love becomes believable, not in the beginning, and now I'm just sort of dubious as to what that marriage looks like. What's the conflict that tears them apart? Well, we see that it's Liliana, basically. His lies, him sleeping with that woman, which confuses me anyways. Why does he want to? I I don't know. That just makes him look even shadier. So let's just make him as shady as possible. And that's interesting, though, that it's actually a living woman and his lies rather than a lied-about woman. <laughs> tearing them apart is it believable yes because I think she had a suspicion all along and then through Beatrice's point of view as well we knew Liliana was a potential love interest for Evan but it's just confusing the way Evan seems to dote on Jane and he brings her there like why would you bring someone to this gathering this party out of city but you know that you're going to sleep with Liliana you're getting ah 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 so many questions okay is uh can this adaptation stand alone or must you have read Jane Eyre to appreciate the work I think that yes it can stand alone in fact I almost recommend not reading Jane Eyre if you're going to read this because maybe that's the way to appreciate it more it's just a thriller then right with with these different characters I think there's still an unbelievability factor I think Jane would I mean she annoys me hugely because it's supposed to be Jane Eyre and she's acting like this but if I were just a casual reader and I hadn't read Jane then I would still be annoyed and also wondering why she was making all these sorts of connections and then you just have to, of course, I mean, there's some continuity issues, details that don't really align, and questions that either remain questions or are answered way later. And I don't think that necessarily is successful. I just looked up in the acknowledgments, and Marcotte had uh, two different editors. So I'm a bit concerned how some of these things got through. But... Ugh, I'm not an editor, but let me just say, <sighs> I have high expectations for my editors and my authors. So then the big, 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 big question is, is this the spirit of Jane or the law of Jane? It is absolutely not the law of Jane. And I don't think, uh, I, uh, I only fractionally, think that it is the spirit of Jane and that's with the gothic tone and feels and the overall attempt to craft this story based off of Jane Eyre but it it leaves me wanting for a stronger female protagonist and that's hello that is why I love Jane Eyre because I'm always looking for strong female protagonists and this Jane was not one so good heavens <laughs> There we are, friends. Again, I say to you, you should make up your own mind and read what you want to read. And maybe this is worth it for you. And I hope that it is. As to the editors and let us name them so that I, I give them due respect. As to the editors, Liz Pearsons and Charlotte Hersher, as well as Lindsay Marcotte, I critique because I care. And I hope 
that I was respectful. I think it's not you personally. It's just um, the job done and that I have high, high, high expectations for when you say you're going to be reimagining Jane Eyre. So there you go. <laughs> From a critic who is really connected and attached to the source material, it's dangerous waters to swim near me. Okay, so we're done with this. We're moving on. And we are going into our listener feedback, which is called From the Airwaves. I have an email, a tweet, which cracked me up, and several comments on the fire and water website okay first email from professor cheapskate aka professor alan middleton okay dear me i have enjoyed the first two episodes of your dear reader podcast i'm a fan of jane Eyre, as well as the other major works by the bronte sisters and jane austen i've enjoyed most of her novels too love the classics I appreciate the discussion of the original novel and the analysis of the early silent film adaptations and the radio play. That was fascinating. I did have... <laughs> Sorry, I was reading. Oh, he's ridiculous. I did have a question on the basic plot structure of the story. You addressed this a bit in episode one, I think, but I want to ask it straight on. Bertha, the crazy first wife in the attic, was she fridged? She does seem to have been created solely to create drama for the lead character and then to be killed, clearing the way for marriage between Jane and Rochester. What are we to make of that in these modern days of 2021? Also, thank you for providing a good <laughs> a good outline for my upcoming A Pure Woman. <laughs> this is ridiculous. A Pure Woman Faithfully Podcasted, a test of the Durbervilles podcast. Unfortunately, that last sentence is a lie. Oh my gosh. Take care and keep up the good work. Professor Allen, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Darkness Delight. P.S. When are you going to do an episode about Jane's hair? And that only makes sense if you're a listener of my other show, Backroll to Oracle, because he is my chief hairstyle correspondent. Whenever he comes on, we talk about Barbara Gordon's hair. So, I don't know. Well, actually, I'll probably talk about her hair when I do my graphic novel and manga adaptations. But The Fridge, I kind of started to get into that, especially with Mrs. Rochester's ghost, with the question of does Bertha or the Bertha stand-in have to die in order for this novel or the story to work. So fridging, if you're not aware, is or was, I was going to say popularized, but I think was invented by Gail Simone in regards to female characters being killed or maimed or injured or assaulted to further the story of their male, male counterpart or the the male protagonist in that story, whatever story it is. I'll give you the example that I always turn to, but specifically the term came from Alexandra DeWitt, who had been killed by the villain Major Force and stuffed into a refrigerator, and Kyle Rayner, a.k.a. Green Lantern, or one of them, is uh, the hero who actually comes home to his apartment and opens a refrigerator and sees his girlfriend. And they're, so they're women in refrigerators, right? So being fridged is talking about that. Of course, a big one for me is Barbara Gordon 
getting potentially assaulted that's still suspicious by the Joker but definitely shot and paralyzed by the Joker but it's to serve his own game and also to serve and push forward the the story and the characterization of her father Jim as well as Batman right so they really taking away agency from the character so in saying that Bertha or the Bertha Standen, is fridged, we would then have to say that Rochester's story is is furthered along, right? And this is actually, well, I don't want to go off on that rabbit trail yet. I would say yes, and, and the and makes it a bit complicated. And I think it's something, this is interesting, it's coming from you, Alan, because I know M did Emma and you I think did a show on how certain phrases should not be switched for the other genders so for example a Mary Sue it doesn't work as a Gary Sue like you can't do that sort of thing because and I'm bringing this up because what if Bertha was fridged to serve or further Jane's story is it a woman in a refrigerator if it's a woman to woman and not a woman to man. There is a difference made there. Now, not to say that it's like more it's it's better if if it happens in that way than in the other one, but at least I think you have an equality there because it is woman to woman. And as I discussed in episode one, how there is this duality between Bertha and Jane, how they're almost two halves of the same being. So I think that's uh, something interesting to, to think about. So to a certain extent, yes, because as I said, I think, you know, Jane and Rochester can't get together. Jane potentially goes off and I, I guess, you know, if it's, what happened with the Tuesday next series, Jane would go off and be a missionary, not necessarily a wife with St. John Rivers. And so in that sense, Bertha has nothing to do with it. But because she dies, Edward is now a widower. He now has a freedom to marry Jane. So I think yes, but it's not perfect. And I think there's a complication there that makes it, it a really interesting dialogue to have in regards to, well, if a woman is being killed off for another woman, what does that mean? In terms, uh, I think she's absolutely uh, fridged in Mrs. Rochester's ghost just because it was unnecessary. Like, her agency literally, it was, like, really taken away from her, and her mental illness was, like, all that she was about almost, and... It was just like, let's throw this character away instead of dealing with it. And I think it could have been really interesting. Yes, diverting from the, the Jane Eyre path by Charlotte Bronte, but really interesting to see what that would have been like to have Evan actually still be with his wife and, and caring for her. Because we did see, I think he still did care for her. He gets all jacked up. His body gets all messed up trying to save her. And... I think at one point he asks Jane flat out, you know, could I have saved her? And and I think Jane says, no, you know, you couldn't have that. You did the best you could, honestly. So it, clearly he still cared about her. And that would have been an interesting path not taken with that novel to see what it would have been like. Thank you, Alan. That, that was a really good question. And again, yeah, I like to think about this now. What does Jane Eyre look like in the modern lens and, and coming up with some of those questions? So I'm going to keep, hopefully keep coming up with different things. 
Okay, next up, we'll go over to the website and then I'll do the tweet last. First from Chuck Coletta, he says another fine episode. I recently rewatched Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca from 1940, and the parallels between Daphne du Maurier's story are quite striking. I'd be interested to know if you've ever read Rebecca. After doing a bit of digging, I noticed there are a couple of filmed versions of the Bronte sisters' lives. A 1979 film directed by Andre Tichine and written by Tichine with the collaboration of Pascal Bonizer and Jean Gruault. A 2016 production titled To Walk Invisible. And I know, so The Sisters, I know I watched, and I wish I could remember what it's called, a story about all the Brontes, and is <laughs> probably one of the top 10 saddest films that I've ever seen, which I did talk about her biography and basically how all of her siblings died. And so it's really tragic and, and hard to watch. And I can't remember what that was called, though. In regard, oh, I'll have to look up definitely those two films to see what that is like, but I'm sure those aren't going to be uplifting either. In regards to Rebecca, yes, I have read Rebecca. I really like Rebecca. Tom and I covered it uh, over at Required Reading. That I wonder what season that was in. We don't really do seasons, but I feel like it may have been before Jane Eyre, so it may have been first season. But Tom liked it, so that means that <laughs> that is pretty good. But yeah, absolutely, it's totally. See, oh my gosh, a successful reimagining of Jane Eyre right there, but also original. Like that's Demoray really balances the line, and I think that's what Lindsay Marcotte should have been going for potentially, but. Mm-mm-mm. so good and an amazing villain <sighs> crazy mrs danvers okay jack bond says this may be our only chance to mention this semaphore version of wuthering heights when you mentioned the film was from 1910 i had this <laughs> wuthering heights i had this suspicion that it would only be scenes from jane eyre still the silent movies i've seen from a decade later use the title cards for more than just dialogue some introduce characters by name when they first appear and some go further to make side comments on the characters they introduce i'm sorry i don't get to hear what you would have made of these movies i too am sorry <laughs> i wish i could have watched it as for wuthering heights i'm not a fan of that novel but i'll have to uh look up what you what what that's about brian linton says i'm outraged what does all that patreon money go towards if not to send inquisitive podcasters on globe trotting research trips seriously though i've enjoyed the first two episodes and look forward to the next yeah that's what i'm saying and i think because i was the last hired i should be the first sent on a trip but you know these people bunch of men on this network they won't let me have my way Rob comes on, <laughs> which I did think of him actually when all this is going down. But he said, I didn't think it was possible to do a movie review show where you haven't actually, you know, seen the movies, but you prove me wrong, Stella. I did think of you and wonder what's he going to think when I'm saying that I'm going to cover two silent films and haven't seen them. Well, it makes sense that Jane Eyre was turned into a movie or two in the early days of cinema because of its popularity. It does seem strange that such dialogue heavy source material would work well at all as a silent film. Frank sure Jane Eyre uh maybe yeah I kind of wonder what those cards would have looked like I have been trying to get the others in the network to pay for one of my jaunts for a while now but no luck <laughs> get in line moose enjoying the show yes I'll try I'll see what I can do with these people maybe they can be bribed and then our final comment is from Siskoid. He says, or they say, Stella, you know every cinephile listening, number one, bugged their eyes out when you said you'd never seen so much <laughs> as a single silent film. And number two, 
went looking for some internet fragment of the movies discussed in case they had resources you hadn't considered. Alas, I love this show and I'm sort of jealous of it. I love that you love it and I love that you're jealous of it. I am so sorry to those cinephiles. I I think it was Chuck actually who sent me something that's like a good like hopping on point for a silent film to watch. So I may check that out. And then if there is anyone out there, a cinephile, that can find something that you know of, then please let me know. I mean, I literally had one of my former students who is Mexican descent to look for a telenovela version of Jane Eyre that I could not find from the 70s because I was like, I think you can help me because some of these sites are going to be hard for me because they're all going to be in Spanish and she tried really hard but couldn't. So I have been trying to contract people. So if you are able to somehow find it, I mean, I really tried to dig around, then yeah, let me know. I, I would certainly be interested. So thank you. Continue to leave those comments. As you can see, I actually do go on and, and read it and then finally a funny tweet this tweet comes from ward hill terry and this person says hi stella i still owe you a proper response to the first episode of dear reader but i feel compelled <laughs> i feel compelled to make a suggestion as i listen to number two please start your show by introducing yourself this topic should appeal to listeners who may be unaware of babs gordon so I didn't even realize that I wasn't introducing myself and that just cracks me up. I guess I am just kind of diving into the episode and it's not because of pride. Like, ugh, you know, everyone knows who I am. It's, I think it's a couple of reasons. Like, first of all, just letting Jane speak for me, just letting the, the subject matter speak for me. And I was also thinking, because I didn't even introduce myself in this episode, I was also thinking... Who even am I? Why are you going to care about the, you know, the podcaster or the subject material? I'm like the mouthpiece that gives you, I guess, the information. But shouldn't you care more about the information? But I totally get it because I do think that I have some loyal listeners that have traveled over from Barbara Gordon's world into Jane Eyre's. And because of that, I am ever so grateful but yeah, for those, I guess, that don't know me, it's like, who is this person and, and why haven't they introduced themselves? Just an anonymous person. But it kind of reminds me of Bane because at one point, doesn't he say, no one cared who I was until I put on the mask. So that's just what I think. But I would try to be better about that. And yeah, <laughs> I'm Stella and I'm leading you through this amazing and sometimes painful journey of Jane Eyre adaptations and I'll try to be better but whether you love Barbara Gordon or not I hope you're along with me on this ride and again 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 right don't be like Jane in this in this book but make up your own minds and that's true of everything right I try to stay away from the internet when movies are coming out or shows or whatever because a lot of it is mostly negative and I want to make up my own mind and as a lot of people know I'm super counter to everyone says Batman and Robin is my favorite Batman film I actually love Jar Jar Binks I love General Grievous I really liked the Birds of Prey I liked Suicide Squad. I liked the new Resident Evil movie. And these are all things that you'll go on and people will hate, hate, hate and say it's terrible, terrible, terrible. So you just need to go in there and make up your own mind. I didn't care for Mrs. Rochester's ghost, but hey, maybe you will. And, and I think that's great. I think that's why we have our own minds and our own feelings. But 
Here's hoping for some positive vibes next episode. If you'd like to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Jane demands it. Go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts where you can make a one-time or monthly contribution and unlock various rewards, including getting name-checked on this or any network show of your choice. And perhaps even I, Jane, will bestow upon you the honor of being called Mr. Rochester. Support the network and harvest the good fruits. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever podcasts can be found. Send questions or comments to batgirl2oracle at gmail.com, don't question it, and follow at batgirl2oracle on Twitter. Thank you, dear listeners, for lending your ears to this show. And until next time, pray do read a book. Check your panties. About 175,000 rice. I think that was supposed to be pantries. <laughs> I couldn't warn you before I saw it, and I couldn't warn you, Eric. I'm just so. About 175,000 rice and slow cookers are being recalled due to fire and electric shock hazards. Just, say, just go ahead and say, just say hello to the internet. Hi, everybody. Hello. <laughs> I'm trying to get it together. It's all good. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs>